Thank you for downloading the Grove City Vineyard Sermon Podcast. Enjoy today's message. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. How's it going so far? Have you exercised all three days like you promised you would? All right, or whatever, whatever, whatever. It's good to see you. Uh, You like my new Christmas shirt? Yeah, I know, right? I know. I make this stuff look good, as I've said before. And, you know, sometimes it can be hard to be me since I look this good all the time. But I cope. I cope. We have reorganized the service for this series somewhat. We're going to be uh, just doing one opening call to worship song each week and then spending time on the end of the service for more extended time of worship and response to God. And so uh, bear with us. I sense this to be a good way to go as we move through this series. For the past several months, I've been asking God what to bring to the church now and this time that would not only enrich your lives as believers, but also just bring him, bring him pleasure and glory And I knew that we, like most churches around the world, are facing a time of challenge brought on, of course, by a global pandemic. And I knew that we also, like many churches around the world, are facing a time of rebuilding. And as I pressed into the question, Lord, what should I teach as we begin this new year in a time of rebuilding, I I sensed the Lord just saying, teach them about the church, As I continued to pray and listen over time, it became more clear. Teach them about the essential nature of my church. And it became clear to me that that understanding, having an understanding of what the church is and what the church is meant to be will do more to bring about a quality rebuild as we move past this time than any other topic of the Bible. So as this prayerversation, if you will, between the Lord and myself continued, and as I asked specifically, well, that's a big subject, teach them about the church, what, what, should I, what should I teach? I was impressed over and over again with this single phrase, the body and the bride. The body and the bride, I heard it in that secret place, again and again, the body and the bride. Now for those of you who may be newer to all of this, the Bible refers to the church, meaning the church in the world, refers to the church as both of those, the body of Christ in the world today and the bride of Christ for the world to come. So I feel strongly led that I'm being Uh, you know, just being led by the Lord to focus a series of teachings about the essential nature of the church as both the body and the bride of Christ. So beginning today and continuing for six weeks, it's my intent to bring you this series, The Body and the Bride. And what I hope to show you today from the scripture that was just read so beautifully by Christian was, was just to show you that without even a close second, the number one purpose of the church, the body and the bride of Christ, is to worship God. 
That is the number one purpose of the church. So will you please open up your hearts and your minds so that as the Holy Spirit can minister this word to us. Lord, we, we come to you now and we accept. We accept the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We accept your offer of forgiveness through his blood. We accept your writing our names down in the Lamb's book of life in heaven that we might enjoy eternity with you. We accept. And we accept our role, Lord, as members of the church, as members of the body of Christ, as part of the bride of Christ, to worship you. So could you come in the power of your Holy Spirit and and just meet each one of us where we are with respect to worship. Just meet us where we are. And Lord, I know that can just be different for for everybody. And so would you just take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, Lord, and would you translate them from my lips to every ear that they could hear your voice, your call, not mine, your plan for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, here we go. Uh, For those of you who like bigger words, uh, the field of study that is devoted to understanding the nature of the church is called ecclesiology. Go ahead, say it. It's fun to say. Ecclesiology, it's a combination of two words, the Greek word ekklesia, which, which is the word for church. It means called, congregated, uh, church. And uh, also ology, which we know that's the study of because we have stuff like biology and anthropology and sociology and a bunch of other ologies in our English language, right? Well, ecclesiology, then, is the study of the church. And today I'd like for you to ask you to please turn in your Bibles if you haven't kept them open to First Peter chapter 2. going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. And Jason, if you could just bring this mic down a little bit. It's just a tiny bit distracting for me. Thanks. I appreciate it so much. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And today we'll see clearly from this text that the primary most essential and fundamental purpose of the church is this one thing, and that's to worship God. So clearly stated in this passage that the very reason God created the church in the first place was to give him, was to give him praise, um, that, that everything else we do, we have to conclude that as essential as evangelism is, as essential as teaching the word is, as essential as uh, healing the sick Uh, ministering to the poor, as essential as being in quality relationship with one another is that none of these things even begin to to take a, a, a close second to the primary purpose of the church, which is to worship God. So as we look through this passage, let's begin as we typically do by looking at the context. Who said that? Raise your hand if you said context. You may go. I have taught you everything I know to teach you. If you answered that question correctly, go. Go. Run away. Start a church. Go. Okay. Context. 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 The larger picture around in which a passage is said is so important to take a second to do that. And today I'd like to just focus on one piece of the context, and that's the writer, the author. What well, we have to notice, the apostle Peter. It is essentially the unanimous opinion of Bible scholars that uh, the Apostle Peter is, in fact, the original author between First and Second Peter. And this being the case, I think in order to understand what he's saying, 
we, it, would, it, would, it would be good for us to notice the remarkable transformation that Peter experienced as a follower of Jesus Christ, because that speaks in, in to what it is that he's about to say. And um, uh, in the course of the roughly 30 years that would have occurred between when Jesus died and rose again and Peter writing this letter, we find a whole different person writing the letter than we left at the conclusion of the Gospels, don't we? In First and Second Peter, these, these books are just filled with profound insights that reflect the heart and mind of someone who has become a passionate and faithful leader in Christ. And uh, so, I mean, just notice with me, First and Second Peter, we're, we're, no, we're witnessing the life of one who was transformed uh, from a person who three times denied knowing Christ for fear of the Romans to, to a person who not long after this will, at the, facing his own execution, will have the courage to say, I want to be hung upside down on the cross because I, do not, I am not worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord. What a transformation that is. Also notice with me that in considering the Apostle Peter, we're seeing the exponential growth of, of a person who demonstrate what in the Gospels what it's like to consistently experience failure by living in your own strength to one who in this, living in the strength of the Holy Spirit preaches one single message and 3,000 people come to Christ on a single day. Would you call that a transformation, yes or no? Yeah, and when we look at the Peter of this passage, we are looking at, at one who was transformed from an educated, from an uneducated fisherman who was called while he was mending nets. Now that meant he was passed over by every rabbi who would ever want him in their, on, his, on his discipleship team. He had no apprenticeship other than here's how you mend nets and go out in the hot Palestinian sun and catch fish to this guy who was overlooked by the religious elite to one who could so eloquently and powerfully bring the scriptures to bear on the deepest truths of heaven and earth. This is an incredible transformation. And seeing this, would you, would you please allow yourself for a moment to just take heart in that? Would you notice in the Bible that transformation is what God loves to do in the lives of his people? Would you allow yourself just to be encouraged by that right now? And was you're, you're overcome with what you don't have and what you're not doing and how you tripped over your own feet this week as a believer, would you just allow yourself to look beyond that and say, but if I cooperate, with the plan of God for my life. Look at what he wants to do. Look at what God wants to do in me. And if we could somehow just cooperate with God in our lives, uh, like Peter did in his, then we think about the hope and the faith and the life that that brings to us. We just let that sink in for a second? You're not done yet. You're not done yet. Put a fork in you. You're not done. Don't turn out the lights. The party's not over. You're not done. Where, 
where could we see such a better expression of that than in Peter? You're not done. This passage was written by this model of surrendered transformation roughly 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus to a people who were being unmercifully persecuted and many even executed by Nero, the then Roman emperor. And here in this passage, to a people who were suffering and even dying because they were simply following Jesus, Peter just masterfully, he weaves three scripture passages together in such a way that he defines the very nature of the church. I love this. You ready? That was context. Let's look at the passage. Therefore, oh, you definitely make, no, you may come. If you just ask, what is it there for? You take it from here, baby. You take it from here. Therefore, there's that word. Therefore, he's going to tell us to do something that is contingent on what he just said. Therefore, well, let's look at chapter 1. Well, what, what, what is it there for? Well, he talks about how amazing Jesus is and how holy Jesus is and that we should be called into a life of holiness, that we're called to a different life. And he says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, like newborn babies. Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Who knew better than Peter that in order to move forward with God's plan, who knew better than him that you have to leave stuff behind? Maybe this was his part of his personal list, right? This is the stuff he struggled. We don't know. We have a list in the scripture that say, if you want to move forward, you got to leave stuff behind. And here, somebody get that, please. And here he says... And here, here he says that's just so essential. Um, and, and, and listen to those of you who are young in the faith. It's worth it. Those of you who are young in the faith and going, ah, seems hard. I gotta, that's a hard decision for me. It's worth it. It's worth it. So I just encourage you to start small but expect big. Think about your life and go, man, that's got to change. Yeah, but back that thing down until, yeah, but what if we started here? Start small and expect big because God wants to transform us. And he's recognizing here that there's stuff that can't stay with us if we're going to experience the true transformation of God. If we hang on to them, we are resisting, we are not cooperating with the plan of God for our lives. I love this uh, verse 3, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love it that what he's telling us is that, that following Jesus is not only conceptual, but it's experiential. It's not just something we think about and believe, but we experience taste and see that the Lord is good. And he's quoting Psalm 34, 18, when David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That there's something about tasting in our relationship with God. There's something about walking with Jesus that's so experiential that it's like just tasting something really good. Does anybody know what it means to taste something really good? And what do you say next? Can I ask some more of that, please, right? And that's what he's saying here. 
That's what he's saying is the nature of walking with Jesus. And then verses 4 through 8, he says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual, into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then here come the scriptures. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious to him. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And Peter is employing a common interpretation of preaching model here where he, where he links scriptures together by a common key word. What, what do you think the common key word is? Stone, right? It's pretty obvious. Like eight or nine times he references stone in one way or the other. Do you find this a little bit interesting? That, that Peter, who was what? The rock. Jesus said, you're the rock. You are the rock upon which I will build my church, ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This would have been so meaningful for Peter. I'm the rock, and he's reading through scriptures, and suddenly the whole scriptures just take on a whole new, every time he can't read it without seeing stones, 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 right? And he's bringing these things together to just share with us that, 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 that Jesus is the cornerstone, and he's so precious to us. You see, he's moving us into, into getting ready to worship. He says, starts by just thinking about what he's done for us. Just what Jesus Christ has done for us. And I think it's worth noting also that he said, the same stone that's so precious to us is the very thing that causes unbelievers to fall. It's like they're tripping over their own answer. They're tripping over Christ. They're tripping over the cross. You see, listen, don't go home without this. There is no gospel without the cross. There's no gospel without the cross. The cross isn't here to help you, or the gospel isn't here to help you keep your New Year's resolutions or do better at work. The cross is here to save us from our sin, and there's no salvation without the shedding of blood, and Jesus Christ shed his blood on that cross. That's the gospel. That's the whole gospel. And some people find life, and some people find it precious and enlivening and inspiring and empowering and encouraging, and others stumble over it. Well, I pray that if you haven't found your way to the cross yet, just a humble surrender, acknowledgement of your sin before God, and just a grateful recipient of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, I pray today, I pray right this second, you would just bow before God and say, I want that. And then he moves on to the next section in verses 9 and 10. He says, but you, but. He says, but. Who, uh, it's a conjunction. It's a word that compares, but. And he said, people are tripping over the gospel. And they are being, they're, they're, 
they, they disobey the message, but you. And here he makes a shift. He makes a shift from the individual you to you. But you, but you, oh, now you, you, you. And he's going to tell us something so powerful, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. He's talking about the church, a holy nation of people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter here tells us that as, as the church, we are a holy nation. We are the spiritual house that God is building for himself. Then in verses 11 and 12, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Why, you ask? Why, why does it matter? Well, look. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. And he's talking about the, the corporate impact of the church on the world. You all. As the church, he just said, you're a holy nation, you're a royal priesthood. Now, live your individual lives in such a way that the world cannot criticize your life. Now let's circle back to verses 9 and 10. You knew I was going to do that, didn't you? You knew I didn't spend nearly enough time there. Verses 9 and 10, you're chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. That's the church. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. The doorway into the church is God's mercy, the cross. <laughs> you weren't, and now you are. Some of you remember the day. Some of you, it was a more sort of extended process but you weren't, you were born weren't, you were born again are. Work with that grammar. Why did God call us? Well, it could not be any more clear. He made us all these things that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. God, God saved us and made us a people so that we could do one thing. What is it? Praise him. Praise him. Worship him. God saved us so that we could do one thing. What is it? Praise him. Worship him. The primary purpose of the church is to worship God. We need not do anything else if we're not doing that. Worship God. I think second only perhaps to the late George Eldon Ladd, Dr. Wayne Grudem is a professor of uh, biblical theology. Uh, he, he said this about worship. He said, worship, I, I mean, I'm going to say that aside from maybe uh, George Ladd, I don't think anybody has contributed more to the central uh, understandings of, of life in Christ in the vineyard as Wayne Grudem. And, uh, and, and here, here's what he said about worship. Worship is itself fulfilling the major purpose of the church with reference to its Lord. And he makes this case that, you know, with reference to the world, we do this. With reference to one another, we do that. But with reference to the Lord, the major purpose of the church 
is worship. And of course we worship God in many ways, don't we? Of course we do. And we need to respect that. Because worship, listen, this is going to surprise some of you. Catch this. Worship is for God. Worship is for God. It's not for us. Worship is for God. We were called, we were saved, we were made into a holy nation that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Worship is always for God. I think there's a sense in which I'm actually kind of excited about the present state of the church, this global pandemic and climate of political turmoil in which we now live has forced us in some ways, I think, to think more deeply about why we are even doing what we are doing in the ways that we're doing them. And so many unbecoming things have crept into the American church over the past few decades that now just seem like they're under review. And in essence, there are parts of the church that too often follow more of a Western business model than they do a spiritual house of God. And as a result, we end up evaluating elements of the church's ministries backwards. And we ask questions like, well, is this thing working? Uh, what results are it producing? Um, is this a good use of our money? Rather than, are we being faithful to the word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit regardless of any of those other questions? And so there are a lot of things under review. And, and this attitude has, has broadly spilled into how the church worships. We tend to evaluate worship in the church backwards instead of forwards. And we, we often ask the wrong questions. We go, well, was that appealing? Was that uplifting? And we say, did it prepare me to receive the word of God? <laughs> wrong questions. There's only one question. Did we worship God? Because worship is for God and is an end in and of itself. The church worships God. The church doesn't worship a man. The church worships God, not a formula. The church worships God, not a culture. The, the church worships God, not a style. The church worships God, not a band. The church worships God, not a doctrine. The church worships God, not a movement or a denomination. The church is meant to worship God. And when the church worships God, the church bears the kingdom of God into the world through worship. When we worship God, the kingdom of God comes. Jesus clearly and unapologetically taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I would venture to say that almost everybody in the room and online has heard that phrase. Jesus said, pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray that God, God's kingdom comes to earth as a true resemblance of how God's kingdom is in heaven. Well, then we ought to ask the question, what's happening in heaven that should also happen on earth, Correct. Well, as many of you know, the last book of the New Testament is a record of the vision of heaven given by God to the apostle John. 
And you can scarcely read three pages of the book of Revelation without encountering the church, saying, worthy, 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 worthy is the Lamb who slain. Come on. So what level of genuine hypocrisy has a believer reached who will dutifully pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and is also not becoming a passionate example of worship? When we as the church enter into authentic worship, the kingdom of God comes. So the church does a lot of things. We but if we don't worship well, we may as well not bother to do the others. Church knows how to get people into the seats now and pray the sinner's prayer and sign up for children's ministry. And church knows how to do stuff. But if we do not worship, it's all in vain, it's not eternal. We run the risk, I'm afraid, of falling into what Paul said in 2 Timothy where he said we have a form of godliness but deny the power. Let me land up with this. How do we worship? So how do we worship? And you're wondering, well, so is this the part where I, where I start to try to make people feel guilty who don't raise their hands or stomp their feet? Do I try to make you feel second best? Is this when I say that unless you worship like me, you're not worshiping? No, this is the part when I say, do not spend too much time worrying about how you worship. Your much larger question is, do you worship? We can worship God in so many ways. In the matter of coming together as the gathered church and engaging in worship as the body of Christ, I just want to ask you, when you're here, are you releasing praise to God? No one can tell that from the outside. Even a person who is exuberant may not be. They might just be being exuberant. When you are here, are you releasing praise to God? Now, the times that I haven't been here and I have tuned in online, I have found this to be the most challenging part of the whole experience, is not entering into worship in the same way. The Word comes, the Spirit comes, and the Word but I just, there's something about the gathered church as we worship. And so, you might be, you know, just saying, I don't know how to worship. And I'm going to say, of course you do. Of course you know how to worship. <laughs> What's in your heart to do? You don't need a class to learn how to worship. It's already inside of you. Who taught you how to savor a great meal? Who taught you that? What seminar did you attend to connect emotionally with a great song or a poignant story? What podcast did you watch to know how to savor a sunrise or a sunset? Right? It's in you. Man, it wasn't, but a couple months ago, I like to get up before dawn and walk around the farm in the dark and just see God. And So I see the sun come up pretty often. There was one morning. The sun was coming up so beautifully. And the full moon was setting at the same time. I said, Mother! Karen! Come! Quickly! You gotta see this! And there we stood together, just going, wow. 
is in us. If you do not want the Cleveland Browns to win this afternoon as they face the Pittsburgh Steelers, then one thing is clear. You are not a Browns fan. <laughs> right? If there is not something innately already inside of you that releases a mysterious desire to see them do well, then you are not a fan. Now, you may have your own personal reasons for not being a Browns fan, like LaRue Basinger, who's probably out in one of the cars, who is a Steelers fan. You may say boo if you like. Mm -hmm. She's made her choice. She has to live with it. You may actually be a Steelers fan, but if you don't want the Browns to beat the Steelers today as their last hope, then you've got to conclude that you're just not a Browns fan, right? And if you don't care who wins, that shows something different. It shows you're not a football fan. Go Bucks! <laughs> Now buckle up for this. If you do not want to worship God, then I think that you should check to see if you have even come to the place of knowing him. I'm not talking about how you worship God. We could talk forever about the many ways to worship God. I'm saying that if there is not living inside of you a desire to worship God, then I implore you to consider even the strength of your own salvation. Christians want to worship God. And I promise you this, that if you tend the fire of your want to worship God, then the Holy Spirit himself will teach you how to worship God. Let's skip to the end there, Booth. If the church were somehow forced to do only one thing. There's only one thing we could do. That's worship God. Worshiping God is the most foundational and fundamental thing the church as the body and the bride of Christ does. And listen, worshiping God is something that can never be taken away from us. There's no regime. There's no circumstance of society that can strip us from worship. I love Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas were thrown into the Philippian jail and it says in verse 25 about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening. <laughs> you can't take that away. It's time to worship God, church. And when we worship, God's power comes. God visits. We're now going to move into a time of worship. And one of the ways to worship is the glorious celebration of, of the Lord's Supper. The glorious approach of the table of God. And just taking the body and the blood of Jesus. Some of you may remember when we were in the parking lot, there was a day that it was time for us to have communion, but we did not feel at all at peace about handing out elements. And so from the 
top of my hay wagon. <laughs> Thank you, God. I said, take this body with nothing in my hand. Take this blood. I received so many reports from people saying that was perhaps, one case, the most profound encounter with God in communion I've ever had. You see, nothing can take this away. So we're going to enter into this extended time of worship, and I want to encourage you, don't look to the left, don't look to the right. doesn't matter how you cheer. Just what's in your heart to give to God. And over the course of these three songs that we're going to do to extend our time of worship, I want to encourage you to move. And we've actually made the decision to put the communion elements up front here. And so during the, I don't want you all to come at once, because we want to keep the spaces, right? I'd like for you, just as we go through these three songs, just to come as your heart is moved. Keep space, keep space. Don't make me come down there. Keep space. And come, come to the table and take one of the convenient communion cups and wafers, and then when you're ready, you go back. And in the context of your own worship, you peel off the top, you take the body, and you take the blood at the time of your choosing. Lord, we invite you to come now. We invite you to come, O oh Lord, now in this place. We invite you to come and, and to receive our worship, Lord. You see that we're, we're not really complicated people here. We're not really admired by the world here. We're... We're just the people of every day, and, and we know that you delight in that. We know that in picking fishermen and tax collectors that you delight in that. And so would you come and delight in this place, Lord, and engage us in worship and free us, Lord, to freely express our love and adoration.